Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Conversation. I'm your host, Pat King. Today on the show, I caught up with Jonathan Mayberg to talk about the fantastic new Shearwater album, The Great Awakening, their first release in six years. Even though Shearwater has been inactive in that time, Mayberg has kept incredibly busy, releasing two albums with the project Loma that he started with Emily Cross and Dan Duzinski, as well as writing his first work of nonfiction titled A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. Shearwater's last album, Jet Plane and Oxbow, found the band favoring anthemic songs that streamlined the experimentation on classic albums like 2008's Rook and 2012's Animal Joy. This time around, with The Great Awakening, Mayberg has created one of his most engrossing and satisfying works to date, taking time to let songs and musical movements bloom with some of the most lush and daring orchestrations he and his band have ever attempted. Mayberg and the band chose to crowdfund this new album, which is out now on their very own Polyburus Records. In this conversation, Mayberg and I discussed the recording of The Great Awakening, his recent move to Hamburg, Germany, the lessons he learned from covering Bowie's legendary Berlin trilogy with Shearwater for a series of concerts sponsored by WNYC back in 2018, his love of Marvin Gaye's classic album What's Going On, and his disillusionment with touring. Just one note, there were some connection issues, so the audio is a little shaky at times, but the conversation is great nonetheless. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so how how you doing? Um, you, you just moved into a new apartment. I did, yeah. I'm in Hamburg. I've been in here. I've, I've been sorry. I'm in Hamburg. I've lived here since early this year, and uh, just moved out of temporary quarters into a, a more permanent space. So, I'm still trying to get around. Uh, you know, the city. My German is elementary, uh, and you know, I miss the U.S., but there are also things I don't miss. Yeah, I, I I can understand that for sure. <laughs> um, what what prompted the move? Was it? Um... Uh, my partner uh, took a job at the Natural History Museum here. Uh, she studies marine worms and uh, is the curator of of worms there now, basically. And as you might imagine, there's very few of those jobs in the world. So when it came up, she was like, "Do you want to move to Hamburg?" I said, "Well, yeah, <laughs> let's do it." <laughs> I mean, I'm in theory at least. I'm I'm pretty portable. Yeah, I I mean, I I guess that's, you know, with with everything, you know, with being a musician, being an author, you know, that that must be a freeing, you know, really, you know, kind of like there must not be a, a internal conversation for you where you feel tied to anywhere in, in some ways. Was that well, was, not not for work exactly, but all the other things that tie you to a place are all apply uh, and and even for work too I mean I can't make records from here um, but I can do writing from just about anywhere and uh, I'm working on a book now about Antarctica and there are actually a lot of Antarctic scientists in Germany so I've been able to uh, interview some people here and, and you know feel like there's a geographic reason for me to to be in this location right 
Oh, that's that's so cool. Um, uh, yeah. So so the new album, I'm I'm really really loving it. And um, oh, thank you. And yeah, and and it's it's been such a pleasure. You know, I've I've one one of the best things about this line of work, you know, being a music journalist, is you can take these deep dives into you know, artists' careers and, and kind of see the trajectory and, and kind of see the little builds from album to album. And it really is just this amazing culmination of everything. Um, how, how are you well, feeling? Thank you. I mean, it, you, you can probably see that better than I can. <laughs> um, yeah. I, and, you know, I, I, I can imagine it's hard to see pers- perspective on, on something like that, you know, while, while you're in it. But I, I guess, you know, with it coming out this Friday, how, how are you feeling? Pretty good. It's it's always a difficult time right around release because you have this vague expectation that something really nice might happen, but that's not usually what happens. It's not that terrible things happen. It's just that life goes on. So having been through that process so many times, uh, I feel like I'm a little emotionally uh, attenuated <laughs> where that's concerned. And I'm not on tour right now, which is great. Like I've, I've had, remember we had a release where we Put out the re- we, we started the tour and then the record came out and um, we felt really excited about it. We were opening for this big band and then the um, and like the Pitchfork review came out and it just really kind of damned it with faint praise. And I remember staying in the parking lot of a hotel in Detroit just going like, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm committed to... And we ended up playing like 108 shows that year. There's some... Pres- preposterous number of shows and ended the year in debt and so it was uh it's small moments of 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 what feels like defeat or victory i've started to kind of discount them all that the as my partner says really the success is that you get to keep doing it it's not that you trend or chart or go viral or that the site gives you nine pineapples or whatever it's it's a um are you able to continue making the work? And by that standard, I'm absolutely a success. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And and just, um, I don't know. I, I feel like the level of, I mean, it's always been there. And reading kind of the press around this album, at least like the press releases, um, you know, it. I, I don't want to quote your press release back to you, but there there is kind of like a lot of, wordage about how this is the album in many ways it's your 10th album but this is the album that you've been working towards now oh i'm sorry well thank you the the, it's funny you say 10th album like god is that true and i guess it is true but at the same time like those first records that you make it's like your your high school picture or something like you don't (laughs) want anyone to even know they exist necessarily i mean to me the um the Cheerwater is a band that I kind of recognize starts around 2006, which is still a while back. Uh, but, um, but yeah, but I, I guess, you know, um, with a band with, you know, maybe I, I guess discounting those, those first two records, it, it feels like, you know, throughout your career, you've kind of had this ability to kind of um, really embrace experimentation and really buck genres in in a lot of ways and and kind of create this this free atmosphere on your records and i i guess with 
this being, you know, well, I guess now we can we can say like your eighth record, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, I, sure, I guess, it's still like, a lot. Yeah, I, I guess when when you've been doing it for this long, I guess what 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 does that mean to you? Um, you know, kind of saying that about a record that this is something that you've been working towards. Like, what does that mean to you? Well, it's one of the, it's like getting older just in general. Like I can't think of an age I would want to go back and be um, or not in its totality, certainly. <laughs> and uh, I just hope that if you just keep working at something over time, eventually you do get better at it. I went to go see Sharon Van Etten last night, which is the first show I'd seen in years. And uh, I hadn't seen her play since like, since I toured with her back in 2014 or something. And uh, it was so much fun to see the leaps and bounds that she'd made as a performer, just in her stage presence and the way that she uh, interacted with the band and the audience and what she felt her role was as the, the front person. And, uh, and that's not something that magically happened to her overnight. That's something that she developed over years of being on the road and just doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think, um, that's true for anybody who gets to hang in. There's so much emphasis now put on the, you know, your first book, your first record, the very first time that you appear publicly in any way. And it's really not fair. Like in what other part of life would you like to be judged like that? Right. <laughs> the first time they got on a bike, they were, you know, they fell off. Yeah, I mean, you want you want to buy a samurai sword from someone who's been doing it for sixty <laughs> years, you know. It, it just, it's just like, well, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. At the, the, I have a joke with a friend who's a, a filmmaker about a makeup effect that we were admiring in a movie. And I'm like, God, how'd they do that? And he sort of sat there looking at it and said, well, they probably worked really hard and it took a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. And, and there is such a, there is such a, you know, we're so quick to judge artists late in their career and, and it, and it kind of only happens in rock music. Like it, it feels like we're always so quick to want to anoint people that show up fully formed. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like, I don't, I don't know. Like you'd like to believe in the, the magical ability of that to happen when, I mean, often, you know, if a, 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 a somebody that you've you suddenly have heard of you know, or has a, has a moment or what have you um has been working in either under another name or with other people or with something like that for a long time they didn't just wake up one day and be like you know <laughs> and there was a few golden exceptions uh, but that, that leads to kind of a lottery mentality when really it's not very uh, complicated or or um or glamorous it's just a lot of work you know making a lot of bad decisions learning not to make bad decisions trying other things uh we're talking in a very abstract realm here um but getting i think getting better at, at making music is like getting better at anything uh, you just have to apply yourself and be able to keep doing it i mean i've made some choices in life and sacrifices in some ways in life to be able to keep doing this uh, because a, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of musicians don't stay in it uh, professionally for often for very good reasons. Uh, but uh, I, I managed to to hang on one way or another because it was really important to me and it really fed my 
you know, soul for want of a better word. I never feel better than when I'm playing music and I don't get to do it that often even now. Uh, so making these records is really important to me. I mean, I took a, also, I mean, after the last Shearwater record it was 2016. So it was a six year break there uh, during which I did things that were completely different. Uh, I finished this book and uh, made two records with Loma where I, a band where I, I wasn't the singer and wasn't in charge completely, which I set up that way on purpose because I wanted something really different. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I wanted to ask, I, I guess, you know, was there a sense of, of burnout before, after Jet Plane and Oxbow or, you know? Yeah, and at, at the end of the, the touring year for that, and then, um, you know, the Trump election happened then, and I was in the thick of working on the, uh, the book, and I was just, felt like it, you could have, if you wrung me out like a sponge, you wouldn't get anything. And the, the Jet Plane tour was, there were a lot of really good shows on that tour. I felt like we left it on a high note, uh, but it was also extremely loud and uh, right. kind of overwhelming. And I've been doing touring in small and mid-sized clubs now for many years. And it gets to a point where you feel like, well, I don't really know how much this has left to teach me. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have a new experience. And uh, I wanted something different. I wanted something different creatively and um, and just in life. And the book, as, as the deadline approached and then I blew past it and then the new deadlines approached was really weighing me down because I'm sure if you've ever worked on a gigantic project, after a while, it's just all in your head and it's all there is. Yeah, it's, it's like... Um... It's like, I, I remember just hearing stories about people getting caught in avalanches, you know, and, and not knowing, like when they're buried in snow, not knowing which direction is up or down. It kind of feels <laughs> like that sometimes. Very much. That's a really good analogy. I'm going to use that, that sometime. I mean, I feel like the, the music does this some when you're working on a record, but at least you're working with other people. Working on the book was just like... It, it was like burying yourself alive. The, and it makes you so solipsistic and kind of an awful person in some ways because you just get so preoccupied with this, all the facets of this giant thing you're trying to keep in your head. The feeling of relief I had when that thing finally was, uh, finally was published was just immense. And of course, like an idiot, I immediately re-upped for another one. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess it, you know, the thrill of it, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, it's the same kind of, um, it's the same kind of feeling, right, when you are absorbed in making a record in some respects, right, where it just feels like you're shaping, you know, this formless piece of clay into, into something, right? Yeah, which is part of why, uh, I mean, whoops. you lose perspective so quickly. Uh, that I've started to, to work on records um, for no more than like two and a half weeks at a time. That was certainly the case with this Shearwater record and with the, the Loma records, because it, the way I think of it is it's sort of like you're, you're in this landscape, but suddenly you start shrinking and everything becomes enormous. And after a while, you're walking around between blades of grass and they look like trees. And if you just step away and don't listen to rough mixes, don't read rough drafts, don't do anything, just do something else. Uh, when you come back to it, 
suddenly you've regained your normal size and you can see things that you, you just couldn't see when you were too far into it. Right, right. Um, so I, I guess like when, when kind of thinking about this record, you know, it does seem like there's so much improvisation and, and kind of experimentation in, in at least just the, in, in the tracks themselves. Um, it, knowing now, like after you saying that you only work on, you like to work on records two weeks at a time, I, I guess like was was this record made in a lot of fits and starts was was it just could you walk me through like the recording process yes I, mean, I can't remember exactly when we started on it i think it was maybe in early or, or mid 2018 we started doing the very first little bits of it um but then we did that big bowie thing uh, where we performed the, the three records of the berlin trilogy live for for wnyc which is one of the great performing experiences of my life. It was so much fun to re-engineer those, you know, reverse engineer those records and play them. And we only had one chance to do each one and we knew it was going to be broadcast. And uh, it was, the, you know, there were like 6,000 people in the audience. So it was, uh, you know, it was such a heady experience that when we were, we did them in reverse chronological order. And so when we got to the last notes of Subterraneans and we heard, um, Travis LaPlante just playing that saxophone note out into nothing. Uh, I thought this could be a way to stop. If I never play another show again, this would be fine with me. But uh, but then after that, you know, we we mix those records and then uh, uh, they're we actually have them for sale on our Bandcamp. But because of right stuff, you, you can't make it available for streaming or anything like that. But then after that, having absorbed all the lessons of of trying to you know, figure out what the recipe was for those records and perform them. Uh, we went back in with a different kind of energy and did a session for a few weeks. Then there was a break of a month or so, a session for a few weeks. And that, that just kept on happening up until uh, earlier this year when we finally finished it. So it was very, I like to dive in very intensely, work really hard for, um, for you know, 10 days or two weeks or something like that, and then just step away and go, okay, I don't know what I just did, but I'm going to know what it is later when we come back. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that as well. Uh, you know, doing doing that, you know, performing the trilogy, the Berlin trilogy, and then Loma also working with Brian Eno. I, mm -hmm. I, I listened to some interviews with you talking about that process working with Eno, and, and I was shocked. Well, I guess not shocked, but I, I it was very interesting to me to find out that you really didn't have any communication with him in the process. No, not directly at all. No. And, uh, you know, doing these Bowie records and then, you know, kind of, you know, piecing the, I, I guess, like getting breadcrumbs from Eno and Bowie in some respects. I yeah, guess. I definitely, you know, it, it's funny that the, uh, like that, that item on our Bandcamp page is like the highest grossing item that we have and i always feel like thanks dave yeah but I, guess, <laughs> but I guess like getting those you know musical breadcrumbs you know kind of learning lessons behind re-engineering re those records and then also you know kind of you know getting little messages from someone who worked on those records i, I guess did that kind of strengthen your approach to uh looking at records or was it kind of uh like a I guess like clearing the decks in some ways. Oh, well, getting getting and 
note of, of voter confidence from Eno was, was wonderful. And I'm sure he knows the kind of effect that that can have. Uh, just to know that something that you'd made had reached him. And the thing that got to him was the, the song Black Willow from the first Loma record. Uh, he mentioned that he, you know, might have been his favorite song of 2017 or whatever that year was that that record came out. Um, 2019, 2018, which was it? I can't remember. But the, um, that he said he'd been, he'd had it on repeat and was just listening to it over and over. And the thought that Brian Eno had, or had been listening to something that we'd made on repeat was just thrilling. I thought, well, I don't care how many copies this record sells. Sold one, that's fine. <laughs> as long as that one was him. But he's just a, a, a I was I was really impressed with the way that he he handled working with us in that way. It was always through an intermediary because it, it wasn't so much even that he didn't have the time to do it. I think that um, if you're a, a real legend in somebody's mind, it's it's very difficult for the two of you to have any kind of real interaction. So it it kept us just on a completely level field. We interacted as musicians purely, and when he sent us this mix, it was a complete mix of the song. Uh, he'd replaced some stuff, added a few things, changed it very subtly but profoundly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just felt like this wonderful gift. I, I was the, um, and in a way, now I just want to build a statue of him, but <laughs> in another way, uh, it's, it just was, it was nice to, he allowed us to meet as peers, which in a lot of contexts would not be possible. Hearing what he did, to something that you had initially created, did that kind of give you a sense of his view of dynamics on, on record or? I'm, I'm not sure about that exactly. I, I can tell you that it had a certain quality that I attribute to his music that I can't really define sort of a, a roundness and clarity to it, but he used mostly the elements that we gave him. I mean, it wasn't radically different, um, but it was profoundly different. Uh, th there was a, uh, th I think there would, the final name that we got from that said something like empty center on it. It was in parentheses. So he may have been a, a experimenting with uh, uh, widening the stereo field, that would be my guess. And then he might have pulled some information out of the center channel um, so that it was more to the left and right, which makes sense to me. Uh, and that's something that, I, I do that every once in a while. It's, it's a pretty particular effect. And if you, you, use too much of it, it's like MSG. It, it's, it's really good at the, at the time and then you regret it later. Uh, but he's always been a real master of thinking about where things are in the stereo image and placing objects in different ways and using reverbs in certain ways. Um, right. And at the, at the end of that song, he, he changed the key of the song. He'd really changed the ending. He made it so that it suddenly jumps up a step. And then he plays out this little kind of churchy sounding organ and he put this little tiny, tiny drum machine and a, and a bass figure underneath that. And it suddenly kind of the whole thing, um, rather than just receding into the distance that you felt like it was, you were lifting off into another plane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, he's just such a mystery to me. I, I, I feel like, you know, someone like him and Lenoir, you know, they're, they're just, these masters of mood. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, what they, one thing that's always really important to us when we're making music and kind of the way we decide once we've made something, whether we want to go on with it or not. Because as Dan um, Dzinski, my co-producer and played a lot on the record says, there's the difference between creating and analyzing. These are two completely different energies. 
And the criteria that we use most often though, when we're listening back to something that we made, especially after a break is, does this make me feel anything? And if it doesn't, um, we've set it aside. Or if there's something that we, sometimes you're working on something and it does make you feel something and then you work on it for a while longer and suddenly you don't feel anything anymore. And you're like, wait, should I, do I need to go back here and retrace my steps and see what that was? Because it might've been that I just refined the goodness out of it. The quality that gives something, uh, an, you know, makes something have an emotional impact is incredibly elusive. I can't point to any one sound um, or technique that always produces it. It's, uh, it's always an unusual combination of things and probably because the brain craves repetition, but also craves novelty. So you have to serve up both of those in equal measure. Yeah. And, and surprise, right? Like, I, I feel like. Yeah. That's yeah, what I mean by novelty. Like you, you want to sort of know what's going to happen next, but also be a little bit surprised by it too. So, so you were saying that, um, you know, uh, jet plane and oxbow, you know, touring behind that record, it, it was a very loud tour. And I, I can see that now, you know, thinking about that record, uh, it is very kind of full of, um, I guess more up-tempo, maybe a little anthemic sounding songs compared to this record. Um, did, did yeah, it was much more sort of like the, you know, the good kind of stadium rock was, was sort of the idea there. And yeah. that, I had an idea that that record was, uh, took place around like 1980. And um, in the sense that at that time, there were these, these wonderful sort of combinations of analog and digital technology and recording that seemed really exciting. But uh, when you think about, for instance, uh, like the drum sounds on Tears for Fears records, which are so amazing, those aren't um, programmed drums. They're mostly um, stacked percussion, stacked real drums, uh, just uh, sometimes processed with gates or uh, there were a lot of actual real performances that, that went down in, uh, in the music from that era that I really love. Uh, then there's also a bunch of just phoned in stuff that sounds terrible, but uh, I kind of I thought of the that record as, as taking place around that time because I felt like there were some political parallels to the, the time that we were in. And it turned out I wasn't wrong about that. But the the new record, I, I, I felt like I'd gone as far as I wanted to go in that direction. And especially having spent a couple of years with Loma. I mean, you think about the first Loma record, which came out two years after the, the Jet Plane in Oxbow. It's like the opposite of that record. Yeah. The dogs wander into the recording. There's... Um, we had all these natural sounds from right around the house. There were mistakes everywhere. There's lots of acoustic instruments. It's it's uh, it's just very woolly and and, and hairy and, and all alive. And I thought this is the more the direction that I want to go in with the next year water record, whenever that is. And that's yeah. what we did. Yeah, I mean, you. I, I guess you could draw the parallel to a band like like Talk Talk. You know, kind of. Mm -hmm. You know, having that anthemic quality and then and kind of retreating to a more you know really taking your time and and kind of expanding out with with something like spirit of eden or laughing stock yeah just living inside pure sounds i mean those those guys were were real fanatics about it and they had a huge amount of money and a huge amount of time <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, guess. I mean, Spirit of Eden costs like two million pounds or something. Yeah, like, right. I often wish that, in, in, uh, that record budgets were made public so that people could see, um, you know, what it costs to make certain records. Like, yeah, I would, I would love to know how much like Tusk 
you know, costed, you know, like Fleetwood Mac. Well, yeah, I mean, like those, but that era is not, I mean, now it's, it's like, uh, those things don't really apply to some of those budgets back then were huge because there were huge profits to be made. And uh, that's not so much true anymore, but also recording is a bit cheaper than it used to be. Uh, yeah, that's not, true. You can't, I mean, people have this idea that you can make a record for nothing now and you, you can't really, um, especially if you're going to be, there's going to be more than one of you and, and people get paid for their time at all. Uh, but because you're still uh, people's attention and care and time is a, that's not any different now. It's still necessary. Yeah, you can uh, you can but, make a record cheaply if you lose a lot of friends in the process. I think. Well, yeah, yeah. If you want to call in all your favors and never talk to anyone again, yeah. The 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 and you do have to. There has to be some gas in the tank in, in the last five percent of the record. I think that's really crucial, and it's that's the kind of thing that runs out if you. Uh, paid somebody a flat $2,000 to make your record or something. It sounds like a great idea to them at the time, but when you're still living in their house three months later, they're like, can you leave? <laughs> um, so I, I was, I was really, I, I really enjoyed reading. Um, you, you published a list of kind of influences that went into making the record on Brooklyn Vegan. And, oh yeah. Uh, and um, I was, I was really pleased to see that, you know, amongst amongst a lot of artists that are considered um, experimental, you know, like Laurie Anderson, uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, Brian Eno, who we talked about. But um, I was really, really happy that you put Marvin Gaye as kind oh, of like yeah. your, as as your number one influence, or or at least the the first person that you you listed. It was but, huge. The, the I mean, and specifically, what's going on? I mean, that that record is so amazing. It, yeah. it sounds so beautiful. It's so far out. Uh, it, it goes so many different places. It's almost scary sometimes. It's um, it's like you're inside and outside of his head at the same time. I, I, I just wholly admire that record. Yeah, and, and I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like him and Curtis Mayfield are kind of mm -hmm. not talked about a lot in, in respects to how kind of far they pushed things and how experimental they were on their records um especially like an album like what's going on where it's it's like this complete song cycle and and right like you're saying like you you kind of there are moments where you kind of lose form of or like lose the form well, the yeah and the, 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 the thing is i like, can't keep he, uh, you know, he started with just the title song and they put that out as a single and then it was so huge that their the record company was kind of like, do you have more of that? <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, I, th I think that that record's regarded, I don't think it's underrated, it's regarded as a total classic, but it's um, how strange it is, is not necessarily so appreciated. Just sonically, when you start digging into why it works the way it does, the, the interaction between the congas and the snare drum, for instance, there's often there's a um, often there's a, a they play a conga on the snare drum, um, so they're just together, which isn't something you hear very often. And I love the effect of it. We even used it in a couple of places. And the thing with the multiple Marvin Gaye vocals all happening at once, where they're all kind of out of sync with each other, and it sounds like. You know, it almost sometimes it sounds like he's hearing voices, like it's uh, has an almost schizophrenic sort of effect. But uh, that was apparently an accident. That was they made a rough mix of of I think of what's going on, and uh, he had done two vocal performances, and they just left the engineer left them both in. 
by accident, and the likely effects on that kept it that way. And so they've used that in a few places too. Uh, it, very simple, um, but really effective. Yeah. And the strains, of course, which are, you know, obviously were added later after the main tracks were put down. Uh, they sound so, uh, they sound like they're, he's imagining them or something to me. Like they, they, they sound like they're in a, such a different world from where everything else is happening in the record. And uh, we hadn't used strings on a record since uh, 2010 or something, I think, because I'm always a little scared of them. They're so beautiful and wonderful and they can make anything sound intentional. Even the worst sounds made on, on strings sound like they meant to do it. But uh, it can really flatten things emotionally. It can turn things into primary colors and make them just sad or, um, or dramatic in a way that feels forced. And, and uh, we really didn't want that. So we were trying to find ways to use strings on the new record that would be, um, would harness the good things about them without, without going into the bad realm. Is, is that a, that's interesting to me. Is, is that a quality of making music that you felt like you've had to overcome over time? You know, not wanting to approach certain instruments, not wanting to approach certain, uh, I, I guess, you know, adding something to your, uh, I guess, like a toolbox in, in some respects to making a record. Is, is that something that or like subtracting now. it. There's, there's, a, there's that wonderful word idiomatic where uh, it gets used in classical music where a, a, a certain instrument starts to have a certain emotional quality for you. Uh, and if you put that instrument in, it, automatically, no matter what you do, uh, it, it has that quality. And it's a, that's true across genres. I mean, the, I love playing guitar solos. I love it so much. It's so much fun for me. I cannot do it on record with a straight face. <laughs> you know, it just means certain things that I don't want to, that I don't want to convey. I do it by myself all the time, but um, I don't have anything to add there. <laughs> so right. the challenge gets to become like, what else can you do with a guitar that would make, make it uh, sound uh, you know, like a different instrument? Or uh, what, what can we rely on here that won't automatically call a certain uh, sonic image to mind for you. I mean, you have an idea in your head about what an orchestra is supposed to sound like, which is crazy, but you do the, uh, from, from exposure. And so if you hear an orchestra where all the, the sections are moved around or out of, out of balance, in quotes, um, like, God, oh, it's too many woodwinds, you know, you, it'll, it would sound wrong to you. Right. And, and, and I guess they're, yeah. And with something like that, you know, I, I it kind of takes a lifetime to kind of have a knowledge of, of to get the knowledge down and then play with the form. Right. Like, I, I feel like that's. Yeah. Cause it's one thing to experience the effect. You can do that right away, but to know why it works is the, is the great mystery. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, but I, I guess like knowing that, like, are, are you happy with the, the string arrangements? Was was that like a grueling process on the record? Uh, the, the string arrangements were actually one of the most pleasant and surprising and interesting things that uh, we we sort of mocked them up and uh, and uh, Emily Lee, uh, one of the three core shearwaters on this record, along with me and Dan, uh, she very patiently scored out the stuff that we sketched out just with uh, keyboards. And then we sent them to our friend Theo Karen in LA uh, and he 
worked with a, a violinist and violist named Dina Maccabee, who played all the parts. She brought a bunch of instruments and they mic'd them up different ways and she played the whole thing and, uh, and then sent it all back to us. And I, was, I couldn't believe that it wasn't an entire section. And actually we even scored in cello parts and there was a cellist who was supposed to come in, but because of the pandemic, we could never get him into the studio. So there were cello parts that just didn't end up on the record. <laughs> but once we had done that for, I think we had four or five songs that we scored out in that way. So that so Dina just played through the arrangements. We then took those and started doing funny things with them. We started cutting them up and changing the key and uh, changing the pitch, uh, speeding them up, slowing them down, putting pieces of the strings from one song into another song. Uh, and so it ended up being this real hybrid um, character uh, where a lot of string parts ended up being placed in places we'd never intended them to be in the first place. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It, it the way they come in on so many of the songs, they're just so like you were saying, like, like I, I was, I was so surprised by, you know, some of the swells in certain moments and, and was really taken aback. You know, I've, I've listened to this record. I think I'm on my fourth listen and three of the, mm -hmm. three of them have been on headphones. And one of them, I was just cooking dinner and, and mm -hmm. there were just moments where I was, I was so taken off guard by the string arrangements and it's, it's really such a, great aspect to this record well that was our experience too a lot of times we would just take something and just throw it into the timeline and then hit play and see what happened and because your your mind i mean anybody like like a film editor will tell you this if you put a set of images in sequence your brain makes connections between them no matter what it, they can be any two things can be juxtaposed and your brain will assume the connection it'll make that connection and with sound, that's also true. Something just pops up suddenly and you go, oh, well, I guess that's supposed to be there. But when it's a real surprise, it, it's a real delight a lot of the time. I still have yet to ever make a moment on a record that truly um, is as, as shocking a moment as I would like to make, you know, where you're just, uh, you know, overwhelmed with joy at how, how ridiculously loud some element is compared to everything else. <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like you've, 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 done that I, I mean maybe not to yourself but i i feel like i'm not, not as a jump but i mean i don't mean that as like a jump scare kind of thing i, I mean like um there's some guitar solo i think on that love forever changes record and it's just so much louder than everything else that it makes you laugh every time <laughs> the or it does to me anyway there's there's just like there's something really joyous about an element that is clearly turned up way way too loud Right, that that kind of breaks like all the rules of mixing a record or something like that. Yeah, yeah, everything's not very properly placed, and instead you have this thing. I mean, there are honestly in mastering some of the it compressed a little bit of the vocals in a few places in, in a way that made me a little sad because there were some vocal entrances that were very like hello, you know, like just like suddenly, suddenly this voice was just right there with you. Yeah. And no, I I love how the vocals are recorded on this record. How close sounding they are i i mean i i feel like that's 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 kind of what you're that took a lot of work because yeah. it's not about getting close to a microphone usually uh the the we crowdfunded the record because this was um uh subpod basically um dropped us and uh so i thought well i mean i can't fund a record all by myself, but maybe people would help us do it. 
Well, the, it, that su campaign succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. We got the best recording budget we'd ever had. And so I was like, well, all right, um, let's build a studio then because we already had Dan's studio that we'd been working in for the, for the first Loma record. And says, well, let's just make this like really, really awesome. And so we bought a, several you know, pieces of gear and stuff that Dan had always coveted, uh, some of which we had to send back because they were just too impossible to deal with. But we ended up with a setup that really, really worked well. And there were a couple of microphones that just um, really, uh, uh, that my voice loved for some reason. One of them was a, a thing called a Coles 4038, which is a, a funny hockey puck looking ribbon mic that the BBC made for, for broadcast. And even though I, mean, I think it's usually, often it's used to record drums or strings or things like that, it also is really nice that it was a very close proximity mic. It's really dark, like it's the, it almost sounds muffled, but it has this presence. You have this feeling like whatever is happening is, is right there with you. I recorded the, my whole audiobook through that mic. And the, the first line of the first song on this, on The Great Awakening is, is recorded through that mic. Oh, wow. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, I mean, kind of having that, you know, nowhere to hide quality, you know, of, of the recording of the vocals. I mean, that's, that really is kind of like a jumping off a ledge moment. <laughs> I, I feel like so, yeah. so, so, so many people are so guarded with their vocals, you know, when it comes to recording and, and even lyrics sometimes. Like, was that kind of a hill that was hard for you to, to climb, you know, in, in your mind? I've always, like everyone, I've pretty much always felt insecure about my lyrics. I work really hard on them and I always feel like I've, you know, almost got there. But, uh, but I do, I, I, over time, I've enjoyed having vocals louder and louder and louder. And some of the, actually from the Loma records, but there was a nice lesson in that. And because I kept, every time I turned Emily's vocals up, I liked them more. And even when I'd written the words, whatever I did for a lot of those songs. And I thought, well, I should probably do that for my own voice too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's so captivating and, and mesmerizing in a lot of ways. Like it, it really just, pulls well, the brain just goes towards a human voice. If there's a human voice doing anything at any moment in a song, your brain goes right to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Always. Yeah. You, you, you want to, you want to be in on the story in some ways. And pop songs now are almost nothing but vocals, like, like all the way through, like from the very top to the very end, there's somebody singing constantly. Yeah, I, I mean, what is, I, I think they did a study about how, or or I guess like big record labels have, have kind of figured out that like if if there isn't a hook within however many seconds of a song, then it's not a hit or something, I think. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's hooks for one thing, but there's also just like, but the human voice itself is kind of a hook. Like that, that draws you in right away and you make judgments about it right away. And I mean, I know there are people out there who can't stand my voice. And it's probably nothing I ever do will appeal to them, no matter how much I altered it or, or whatever I did to it. It just doesn't speak to them. But then there are other people for whom it works. And, um, you know, I, I don't think you ever lose the sense of you, the sound of your own recorded voice being uncanny. Right. Like, I never like to listen to the sound of my voice, but sometimes I hate it less than others. <laughs> and so it's <laughs> really where I'm trying to go with that, you know, when we're doing 
uh, vocal you know, compiling the vocals. And a lot of the time, uh, there, there were a number of occasions on that record where we set up a really nice vocal chain, a you know, recording setup, and I would just sing over the track and try to make myself sing words, whatever came to mind. And usually it's garbage, but there are a few lines here and there that would come out and that if they hit us just right, we would always keep them and then build the rest of the song around it. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, you, you were saying uh, before about how, you know, it, it's been six years since the last Shearwater record and, and you made two records with Loma and, and wrote this mm -hmm. book. Um, I, I guess, you know, you wrote lyrics for Loma, but I, I guess did that help you i i guess how did the lyrics come for this record like how did it kind of seem did the practice of writing lyrics seem different this time with with having so many different well, write, writing for emily is very different from writing for me it was part of the challenge of loma which i really liked is how do you write for somebody to sing who's not you I mean, first of all i had to sort of figure out a sense of what her range was so that, you know it would be comfortable for her to sing uh but, but then there's the you know, some lyrics sound good in some singers' mouths and don't sound good in another one or feel good. Uh, so like when we're doing Loma stuff, if there's a line that Emily gets hung up on that she doesn't feel right singing, then I'll, we'll adjust it. it. It did have the effect of making the songs feel very external to me, which I think was valuable because you tend to think of songs as, if you're gonna sing them, uh, that it's all just, it's somehow very, you know, that it's you. That you're putting a piece of you there and you sort of are but not as much as you think <laughs> you can always adjust the uh, you know you can adjust the character you can adjust the delivery you can adjust the line you don't have to get wedded to a particular line just because you thought it sounded good um, or it read well on paper often those are the ones that sing the worst and if something strikes you funny you have to sort of keep your radar up about that and go okay whatever that is that's not working the the song uh, milkweed on the record is one of my favorites and probably the strangest, I guess. And that's a song where we just kept cutting things out of it. We built up this track and I had a bunch of lyrics and stuff for it. And we just started cutting instruments. Then we started cutting lines of, of vocals and we just kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting until we're like, all right, we really can't take anything else out of this and still have a song at all. And that was what we ended up using. And it was one of our favorites. Yeah, it, it really is that that song is such a highlight on the record for me i i, I love it um it's so not we wouldn't we'd never have used it as a single you know it's just too, too, too strange um, but it's the one that that the quality of making you feel something that one that makes me feel something yeah um a, a song like empty orchestra um mm -hmm. the opening line of that song feels like kind of a response to pale kings from um you know, from the last record, uh, was was that? Were you writing from that perspective? Was it was it kind of looking at that song, or was it unrelated? I wasn't thinking about that specifically. No, no. Uh, I was thinking of more of the the sense of um, paralysis. Oh, interesting. Uh, the the like like you can see what the problem is, but you can't do anything about it. And uh, that song is sort of, I mean, it's just one of those kind of shedding your skin kinds of songs. Um, finding that the courage within yourself to reject something really big, something to reject a part of yourself, really. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine why you'd be feeling that way. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to move to, to Europe while I was making this record. Uh, but, and I, I specifically wanted to get away from the, I mean, the jet plane in Oxford is so full, just full of dread about like how, how icky the United States felt and, and, and feels in certain ways. But um, I, didn't want, I didn't want to just continue in that vein because I think I got a little too focused on the human world and making the, the writing the book actually, it was just a, reminded me again and again and again and again that humans are not the only story. Uh, we're, we're part of it, but there's all this other stuff going on without our permission. Um, and uh, the dwelling in that world more, it's a, it's a much, I think ultimately becomes a much healthier way of thinking. Right. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with, uh, with the, when you're recording something and, and, uh, and you get too tiny and the blades of grass seem too huge. <laughs> that's certainly what that's, you know, trolling the news feed on the internet will do that to you. But you, can, you could read from 24 hours a day, seven days a week, stuff on the internet, and you would still, most of, of life on earth, human and otherwise, would escape you. Yeah, no, that's, that, I, I find myself getting caught in that a lot. You know, as, as as someone who works in in media, I feel like I need to like actually see people to gauge, you know, how things are in the world. Or I don't know. You you definitely lose sight. Very. Well, I mean, the, everything. The, the internet is nothing but people. It's just people, 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 and it sprung out of our head like Athena out of the head of Zeus. You know, the. And what's Athena? She's like the goddess of war. <laughs> You, 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 and the internet seems like a, a, a sort of nasty mental virus that primes us for combat and turns us all like into the you know the bugs from Starship Troopers or something. And even the you know images of natural scenes or information on the internet were all placed there deliberately by people. No natural thing occurs in the internet, and yet that's not the world we live in. <laughs> that really is not where we live and yet it becomes so um it's so convincing at lying to you and telling you that that is where you live right and and i know like the inverse matrix I guess. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that's really interesting i mean i mean it's, yeah, it's a version of the matrix trade everybody lives in the real world but they're all they're all desperate to be convinced they live in a pod <laughs> yeah yeah or or like thinking that like like approval online or anything like that as any sort of currency or, or will make any of your life outside of online any better. Like, I think it's. No, it just plays your hormones like a, like a violin. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, I, I know, I know I, I was looking because I was curious because I, I, w- I would love to see this material played live. Um, and, and I saw, mm-hmm. I saw that you don't have a tour on the books. Um, I, I, I guess, is, is the plan to tour behind this record or do you kind of want to present it as a statement and not try and recreate it live? Right now, I mean, I, I can't remember if I, said this to, if I said this to you earlier or not, but having done this for many years, I now feel that I've learned all that the small and mid-sized clubs of the United States and Europe have to, to show me. Right, right. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't crave that experience anymore. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you, were, you were saying that earlier, but 
I, I wasn't sure if that was it's, like- it's so, it's Just because there are so many impediments in that situation to you doing a good job. Because I, I know what a good job would be. Part of it, doing those Bowie shows at WNYC was a, a dream come true because it was like, oh, this is what it's like if you actually have monitor engineers and you know you, you can pay the musicians and uh, the, you're not scrapping for every single bit of, of time and energy. At the, the last the last tour, Planet Oxbow tour, like we played at uh, Chicago, where were we? Smaller place, Shubas. And it was sold out and everything, but the but it's a small club. And there's this terrible buzz in the PA there that's been there for like 15 years. Every night, it's always there. They know it's there. They haven't done anything about it. <laughs> And like, I, I really, I would, if I'm going to go to all this trouble of driving all over the country, you know, that kind of thing and hauling my friends around in gear and cramming us onto a van doing all this stuff. Can you just get that 60 cycle hum out of your PA? But uh, it just seems like there's so many obstacles to being able to put over the kind of show that you'd really like to do, especially with this kind of music, which is really grand. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's not like uh, you can't just throw up some amps and, and, and smash away. So uh, as fun as that is to do, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just not what we do. And so being able to present it in a way that feels like it, it's in line with what the music is, is, is really hard. Um, I can't do it in a, in a 200 person club with two Mackies on sticks. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like, uh, I feel like, you know, but I mean, I'd have the audience for that. You know, like I, the, if you, if you don't have, if, if, if I knew that, uh, thousands of people, you know, I was going to get a thousand people and I did something, I'd have no trouble doing a big tour, but I don't have that. That's not the size audience that I have. And so it's, um, then you try to figure out, well, how, what can we do? Right. But I, and, I, I, uh, I guess think, uh, thinking back to, to that tour I, and, and I guess just touring in general, like how, how do you generally feel before and after a show? Uh, before terrified, terrified, uh, after relieved. <laughs> almost every time so that and that tour was i mean i did feel like like most nights on that tour we really were able to do it and there were a few clunkers like there always are but uh you know i felt like i was singing well i knew how to do it the, the musicians i was playing with were just so great i loved them uh and uh, uh, right now i'm plotting a show in austin in uh, may of 2023 that'll be at the uh, symphony hall. Oh, wow. Yeah, to, to, to do this album all the way through or? Um, I don't think I'm gonna do that, um, but, but uh, cause I don't, I don't feel that wedded to it as a, like I don't feel like it's the wall or something where you have to go from, from top to bottom. Um, but just sort of a, a really big, really grand Shearwater show, probably with Loma also, like, like a, do a two-part show. We have Loma and we have Shearwater and, and we just really go for it and, and film it and record it and make that available. And maybe that's in lieu of a tour. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like, I don't know, I, I feel like more and more bands are, are kind of taking that approach, at least, at least <laughs> making, making shows events you know rather than you know maybe doing like a residency in a certain city and kind of real yeah it, it, it's so much easier to do a good job under those circumstances the i mean i understand that we kind of have we, we're um especially old guys like me or like living with the memory of a, of a time uh when 
the way that you found out about music was through uh, magazines and the radio and going to shows. Well, uh, magazines don't really exist anymore. The, the radio is completely different from what it used to be. Uh, and after a while, I mean, as somebody, Michael Azarad was talking with him about it. He's like, look, I mean, there's Netflix now and you can order in and get, like, why would you go to the trouble of going into some crappy club at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, you can, we can, we can, we can, we can complain about the demise of, of, of small scale touring all we want, but that doesn't change the fact that it was pretty much always miserable for everybody who had to do it. And, um, and it was just like the conditions are so bad. Uh, so it's hard to, to um, it's hard to mourn it too much. I, I, don't, I don't know that I need to play in Boise on a Monday night ever again. That's the other thing, you know, on tour, it's like, the, what, when do people go to shows? They go on Friday and Saturday, sometimes Thursday. And yet you're out on tour, you've got to film Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday also, probably, if you're not making that much money, which very few people are. I mean, the music business is like any other part of American life. Like all the money is taken by the top 0.1%. Everybody else is doing it for some other reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, especially adding something like the pandemic in, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, that just, that, that I, I was not, I have to, I mean, obviously I would prefer that we lived in a world where that hasn't happened. Um, but the fact that it put a stop to obligatory uh, long slog touring under really kind of crummy conditions didn't really depress me. Uh, and because we weren't working with a record label this time, I didn't feel like I had to, um, you know, they often, there's sort of a expectation that if they're going to work with you again, that you have to go out and, and play lots of shows. But I'm always, I always thought, would, I always thought, well, but you don't have to tour on your last record, do you? <laughs> and then, <laughs> Uh, and this time I was like, wait, I, I don't have to answer to anybody about this. I don't have to do that. Yeah, I, I mean. I love performing. When it's good, there is nothing better. I miss it. Um, but I don't miss all of it. <laughs> and really, most of touring is like being a truck driver, except for what you do at night. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it, for sure. And it becomes a little bit like personnel management and um, you know, you have to think about when you, um, you just learn all these things from experience over a lot of time. Like I would, uh, I would much rather take the um, a musician who maybe wasn't the very best musician I've ever played with or something, uh, but was a really good person to be around over somebody who was a brilliant musician and intolerable because <laughs> they won't be playing, the second one won't be playing well by the end of the tour anyway. And there's just so much effort goes into trying to construct an environment where you don't kill each other. Oh yeah, yeah. That's Which has nothing to do with with making music in the end. It's just all about trying to. It's all just about like keeping your, your unit going. <laughs> it's yeah. It's like it's like testing your will to see like if you enjoy it by the end of a growing tour. You know, just like yeah. It was part of it, it's nice to bring in new people actually for that reason, especially like people who haven't toured before, because for them it really is an adventure. It really is fun, and sometimes you can kind of live vicariously through them and and say like, hey, you want to go do this? And it reminds you of that, uh, rather than just having a bunch of crusty oldsters kind of, oh, here we are again. <laughs> and he's still working at the Bowery. You yeah. know? 
Um, Kenny's great, by the way. I think he may have retired, but it's something you look forward to. But but you can you can look forward to certain things too much, also because if they're different when you get there, then you feel disappointed. It's much nicer to just take things at face value. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like. Yeah, I, I can I can see that for sure. Where it's it's just like. Um, you know the definition of madness right <laughs> like, you know. right yeah and, and you there there's a i think those of us who grew up in the middle class in the united states had it all drilled into us that it was everything that happened that, you know you were the, the maker of your own fortune and uh, um if something bad happened to you it was your fault if something good happened to you it was because you're awesome of course this is all a complete lie but um but it was very easy to subscribe to this model is like well we're going to play the smaller clubs and then we'll work our way up to the medium-sized clubs and then we'll do the big clubs and if we just work really hard guys then i know we're going to make it and of course this is also is complete fabrication that's not how it works um i mean that may have happened that way a few times but it's not an established path um bands that play small clubs usually end up playing small clubs forever right yeah it's it's kind of an unfortunate reality <laughs> for, for a lot of bands yeah, it just it's, it's a you know you think you're getting on some ladder, but it's actually just a, a moving sidewalk. You know, <laughs> you think it's an escalator, but it's a moving sidewalk. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, to wrap it up, Jonathan, I I, I feel yeah. like I don't know. I I feel like you continuously, you know, you continuously make music that, you know expands on on what you've done before and I, I think this record is is such an achievement and and thank you and i i think you should be really proud of it i i think it's 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 a it's a masterwork oh i i really appreciate that you know after by the time you get to the end of a record you don't know what you think about it anymore and maybe years from now you might have some idea you just know that you've done the best job that you can uh, and this record at the end did make me feel things, even after he hearing it for the, the hundredth time. Uh, so if it now all I can do is hope that it does that for others. If it weren't for the support of people through like, uh, Patreon and that kind of thing, um, and and the crowdfunding of the record, I wouldn't have been able to keep doing this. But I just feel really grateful to do it, and I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I can. Amazing. Well, well, Jonathan, it was so, so great meeting you, and, and I love this. Oh, thank you so much, Pat. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. Take care now.